Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast that dives headfirst into the proverbial deep end of the latest trek into the final frontier, Star Trek Discovery. I'm co-host Chris Clowen. I'm joined, as usual, by members of our bold panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, including Rachel Clow. Hey, Chris. Hello. Zaki Hassan. Greetings. And the one, the only, Cicero Holmes. Death is simply just another plane of existence. <laughs> That's exactly the kind of flavor of discussion I think we're going to have. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. Well, uh, this week's discussion is going to be oriented around arguably the most traditional episode of Star Trek that Discovery has yet produced, but it's also likely one of the most positively talked about among fans so far, at least from what I've been able to glean. Uh, seemingly a bit more of a standalone story, the second episode of season two will likely be feeding the theme of fate that seems to be a major focal point of the second season thus far, and has a distinct feeling of truthfulness to the franchise undoubtedly punctuated by the return of Jonathan Frakes to the director's chair. So this one should be fun. But of course, we'll ease into our news and episode discussions by talking about what everyone has been up to since the last time we recorded, which wasn't that long ago. Uh, if you guys have been engaging with Star Trek since we last recorded, besides, of course, this new episode of Discovery, and I know that engagement in general has been a little low, but as the new season is kicking into gear... Has that increased a little bit more in some some other ways, Zachy? Well, it's like we talked about last time. Uh, I rewatched uh, the Cage, so mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm in uh, full Captain Pike immersion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that that's that's well served by uh, by the things that we've been seeing here recently. Rachel, what have you been up to? Well, I've been just mostly watching the stuff you've been putting on the TV. Which, yeah, yeah, we watched. Um, so maybe we should answer together. Okay, uh-uh. all right. Well, we we can do that. Uh, Cicero, how about you? Since the last time we recorded, uh, yeah, I've I've only been watching um, fake TNG, aka the Orville, um, <laughs> which uh, had a first contact episode of their own this week. Yeah, pretty so interesting uh, thematic yeah. alignment there. Yeah, huh? Exactly. Exactly, and dichotomy and and how things were handled as well. Yeah, yeah, and and that had a very traditional sort of uh, TNG vibe to it in terms of what it explored in a first contact. So I enjoyed that too. Uh, the only thing that I've done because we you know we're recording this, we're we're playing a little bit of catch up since uh, you know the second se- the second episode aired i think was it just the day after we recorded our discussion about the season premiere yeah so uh so this one is coming a little bit quicker uh the only thing that i did really i was curious um watching the cage again particularly the remastered version because the opening shot of the cage after the credits roll is a pretty unique uh look at the original enterprise before the camera sort of goes into the bridge dome and uh, reveals the crew all sitting there. And I remembered uh, when I took in TOS Remastered for the very first time, I thought that I had seen some kind of a featurette about how they constructed the remastered version of that shot because it had quite a bit of difficulty. In the original version, when the camera goes into the bridge, it's kind of at an awkward angle, but the, uh, the remastered version of the cage decided to actually you know, obey the laws of 
of physical reality in the way that it uh, that that it showed that beginning shot. So it created like a CG reconstruction of that original bridge set with all of the uh, the people at their stations, and then just kind of lowered the camera into the bridge and preserved uh, the the very first shot that we saw of the bridge. But I threw on the featurette about just the creation of TOS remastered, and they didn't mention that visual effects shot. Uh, so I'm not quite sure where I saw that or, or, you know, how, how I took that in, but Rachel, that was the first time that you had seen sort of how they put TOS back together in the, in the HD remaster. What did you make of that? Um, that's really impressive. All of the work that they did, especially the before and after shots, like, you, you know, Shatner's face is so fuzzy and then you can see all the like sweat and makeup mm-hmm. that he has on. Yeah. <laughs> Just like really <laughs> interesting. No, it was a really painstaking uh, conversion from the original series because they scan in the film elements. But just scanning in the film elements doesn't give it all the TLC that the crew at CBS Digital ultimately gave to just the the internal shots before you even get to the fact that the special effects are remastered. But I remember writing for movies.com a few years ago about how I appreciated the sort of curated approach that, uh, that CBS digital and people like uh, Dave Rossi and the Okudas had to bringing TOS uh, up to modern fidelity standards. Uh, Zachy, how do you think they did in general with TOS remastered? You know, I think, I think, uh, uh, by the by the end of the project it it was fully living up to its potential you know the early i remember watching some of the early ones and it was uh, dodgy uh, in terms of mm-hmm. how it looked i mean the the goal the goal uh initially was to make it not look digital i mean just make it a like a you know a high def replacement for what we saw and then as as they went on and they got more confident what they were doing you that you started to see them deviate more from what what was originally there and i think uh that benefited the show mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I i agree with that entirely uh but also too just the 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 attention that was paid to stuff that well, we we want to do stuff that they necessarily could do in the 60s but we also want to show the enterprise functioning in ways that we know it functions like right. uh the episode where they drop a bunch of um a bunch of sensors into planetary orbit there was a, a like a circular decal on the bottom of the enterprise model and michael okuda said well what if those are bombay doors so they show the enterprise actually dropping everything into orbit through that little decal they actually turned it into into kind of a bombay which i thought was kind of a nice touch but uh Cicero, how do you make of, uh, or what do you make of the sort of remastered visual effects for TOS in HD compared with how you probably watched it when you were a kid? Uh, well, it's, I mean, it's great. Anytime you can, you can do the updates and, and still kind of, uh, revere the source material. It's fine with me. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, I, I take a, a pretty Zen approach, even if I don't like it as a consumer, if you own the property, uh, cough, cough, George Lucas, you can, <laughs> you can change it, you know, however you want, it's your vision. So, yeah. um, but, but, uh, the thing that while you were talking about all that stuff, the thing that really kind of struck with me as an old man moment is it's stories like that, that will, uh, that I'm afraid we'll lose in the all digital future Mm -hmm. um, where you 
because you got the physical disc, you had uh, all of this, you had all of this extra uh, uh, source source material, all these literal extras, all these extra features um, that just won't be around. Like if I just ordered the digital version of of season, you know, the entire series of TOS, I don't think the extras are going to be there. Yeah, that's uh, a very viable concern, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that kind of sucks, but yeah. Yeah, it seems like special features in general are going out, yes. which sucks really bad, yeah. I think. But uh, Buy physical media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, when the power goes out and you don't got any internet. That is or, true. Or just if your service goes, I mean, when the power goes out, you can't watch a Blu-ray right, either. Right. But if your internet goes out, you certainly can. And uh, we've run into that scenario more than once. Rachel says, why do we have Blu-rays? And the internet goes out and they say, this is why we have Blu-rays. That is correct. The yeah. internet doesn't go out that often. Well, no. but- well, <laughs> the last time was like two and a half years ago. But yeah. we'll see. We got some hellish weather coming to Chicago in the next couple of days. That is, so. Hell froze over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. All right. Well, as usual, before we head into the full episode discussion, let's discuss some Star Trek news first. Uh, this isn't really a discussion point, but more episode titles for Disco- Discovery Season 2 have been revealed. Um, episodes 3 through 6 have had their titles released, and they are Point of Light, which is coming on January 31st, An Obal for Charon. It might, I, I always screw that up, but. It might be Charon. I can't remember sure. exactly how they pronounce the, the name of the, the Terran flagship but either way that one's coming on february 7th saints of imperfection is coming on valentine's day february 14th and the sounds of thunder is coming on february 21st the uh february 7th episode is also supposedly when we'll be getting our first look at rebecca romaine as number one pike's first officer from the enterprise and uh yeah just kind of nice to have an update on some episode titles as we continue into season two but this one This next point, I think, is pretty interesting. Um, Jonathan Frakes spoke to both Deadline and The Hollywood Reporter about a whole plethora of Star Trek topics, including the themes of Discovery Season 2, how he believes Discovery is aligning with Gene Roddenberry's larger vision of the world he created, threads that may be actively being picked up from Discovery Season 1, and even some tidbits about the forthcoming Picard series. Basically, Frakes believes that Discovery, under the leadership of Alex Kurtzman, is embracing the canon of the Prime Universe, while also allowing the same kind of dynamism and construction that serves as a hallmark of the Kelvin films. And he also shared that he has serious regrets over his decision not to return to the director's chair for Star Trek Nemesis. And you guys know me. Any chance to talk about Star Trek Nemesis, I'm going to grab onto. So... <laughs> Rachel sign over here. Guys, do you think Nemesis would have automatically been a better movie if we still had the John Logan screenplay, but just had Frakes in the center seat of the movie? Rachel. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think it might have been better. Didn't the person who end up directing it called like the called Jordy Laverne. Yeah, he did call LeVar Burton Laverne. Which Laverne sounds like a Yeah, he which sounds like an a dick move. <laughs> What's worse uh, is he was like, hello Laverne. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. I mean, like, I think a better working environment probably yeah. would have made the the finished product a little bit better. But, I mean, the screenplay may have had issues. I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen it. So You always refuse to watch it. Like, I start to put it on. Yeah, you know, And I, as soon as Nemesis comes into view on the TV, Rachel's like, turn it off! <laughs> yeah, I just have issues with it. Kill it with fire. Yes. Yeah. Well. I mean, it's a whole discussion, the issues I have with that's it. That's true. So. And we'll, we'll have to have that discussion someday. Zachy, would Nemesis have been a better movie if Jonathan Frakes had directed it, but all other things had stayed relatively the same? I mean, I think the direction would probably have been better because I think Jonathan Frakes is a better director than Stuart Baird, who is a good who who is as a director uh, uh, a good editor. So he should stick to that job. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it wouldn't change the script from being a karaoke version of Wrath of Khan. So I think the problems would still be there. And I mean, let's be honest: if Jonathan Frakes did two Star Trek movies, uh, half of which are not very good. So. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? He he couldn't save Insurrection. The, the problems were still there. It's a well-directed, mediocre movie. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, even... I, you know, I mean, I wish he would have directed. I mean, he wouldn't have called uh, uh, LeVar Laverne. So that's, that's true. That, yeah. That would have been one thing, you know, one notch. I am so conflicted on Stuart Baird. I mean, because, yes, he did direct Star Trek Nemesis, which by all – conceivable metrics is a disaster in the franchise. Even if I might like it a little bit more than other people do, I still acknowledge its position as a franchise killer. But, uh, you know, he also edited Superman, the movie. So, you know, it's kind of, (laughs) that's the problem. Yeah. His directing filmography is like before, before Star Trek, it was executive decision and U S Marshall. Wow. Right. So, and I remember very distinctly when Rick Berman, you know, when they were developing the script for, for what became Nemesis, and he's like, we've got a director lined up. It's really exciting. He's never done Star Trek before. And, you know, you sort of, you think to yourself, like John Logan, so you're like, oh, maybe it's like Ridley Scott or something like that. And he's like, no, no, no. Are you sitting down? <laughs> Stuart Baird. <laughs> and he was so, like, excited about it. I remember at the time, at that time when that announcement was made, I was like, I don't think Rick Berman, like, is aware of what's happening right now because, yeah. you know, it was time at that moment. <laughs> oh, you know? oh, it was. I mean, um, yeah, that, I, I imagine that announcement maybe catered to a little bit more excitement than you might get out of Uva Bowl. <laughs> but maybe not much. I mean, U.S. Marshals by itself, I didn't realize that Stuart Baird directed that. And uh, not an auspicious follow-up to The Fugitive. No, oh, no not at all. Cicero, what do you think? Uh, would, do you think that this would have made for a better movie if we had Frakes in the center? I, th- I think Zachy, Zachy said it all. Uh, you know, a a good director can only make the direction good. He can't make the screenplay good, you know? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, like, like, uh, like Zachy already said, you know, it would be a well-directed, um, slightly, slightly not hot mess. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all just largely symptomatic of where the franchise was at the time. I suppose. I mean, Star Trek had pretty much run out of gas by this point. Uh, not that there wouldn't be some bright spots to be found in Enterprise, but. 
I mean, seven years between movies is pretty long, even in Star Trek terms. So, uh, yeah, it's hard to argue with uh, Frakes' ultimate conclusion because, I mean, ultimately, who knows? Frakes also, probably would have. Also, I'm sorry, but also, let's remember, it's Jonathan Frakes talking about himself. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, uh, he thinks he thinks he has a high opinion of himself. And, uh, and, and he gets away with it because he does good stuff and he's likable. Hey, two takes breaks, right. two takes breaks. He, he gets it done. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he also spoke about the Picard show and he shared that, uh, the good captain is no longer in Starfleet when we pick things up, uh, 20 years post nemesis. And he also said that Patrick Stewart himself is absolutely jazzed. That's a direct quote about what the show will be doing before adding, quote, he's been in the room with the writers breaking the stories and he has not had that privilege before in his career. Mm. It has motivated him and excited him to no end. I'm really looking forward to it. Picard 20 years later is a fascinating guy. He was a fascinating guy since we've met him, end quote. How does this sound to everyone and are any of you even remotely surprised that Picard isn't in Starfleet anymore? Because a lot of clickbait sites certainly were. Cicero, what do you think? How's this sound? Uh, I, I think it's it's furthering my point. It is the further adventures of Jean-Luc Picard in the holodeck. It's holodeck adventures, <laughs> man. Holodeck <laughs> adventures of Picard. Dixon Hill. <laughs> Just he spends 20 years doing Dixon Hill stuff. Kind of like... Zach, how Zachy mentioned last week, how Seth MacFarlane just gets to do his 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 Star Trek cosplay. Yeah. Picard spends his retirement doing Dixon Hill yeah, cosplay yeah. and Shakespeare. And Shakespeare, right? Yeah. <laughs> how does this sound to you, Rach? Are you surprised that he's not in Starfleet? Not at all. Does this okay? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it was implied in all good things that he was still in Starfleet, right? Yeah. Um. And in various other literature, he is an ambassador, but not really in Starfleet. In several alternate futures, yeah, he he becomes a member of the diplomatic corps. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. not surprising at all. If you're familiar with um, the various iterations of future Picard, this Mm -hmm. seems right on track with those. Yeah, I agree. Zachy, what do you think this portends for those kinds of stories 20 years after the fact? I mean, I think it's interesting the fact that, I mean, we said this before, right? Uh, Patrick Stewart was content to let Picard be in his rearview mirror and they contrived something that uh, got him jazzed. You know, I think I think Kurtzman said they came up with like a 40-page document or something wow. and that was it. And obviously the fact that they've got him in the writer's room. I mean, I, I'd like to believe he's in the writer's room because he's interested and then it's, it's not like um, – in, in extras, you know, when he's talking to Ricky Gervais about his, I've his seen him. Oh, Picard has powers and he makes women's clothes fall off. <laughs> I hope that that's not all. Like that's not the only reason he came back. But you know, it's I I love I love the speculation and I love that we're at a place where we're even talking about this. I was telling my brother, I was like, when you think about it, this is the first time since 2002 where we're taking the Trek timeline forward. And it's like, that is crazy. We've had so much Star Trek content from Nemesis to now, but this is the first time we're actually moving the ball forward, notwithstanding, you know, the little hints that we get in the 09 movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in total agreement there. I mean, Star Trek has always, at least in my mind, been best when it is moving things forward. 
so the fact that we are finally going to be doing that, at least to to a point, is really exciting to me. I've seen some people openly speculating online, and I think it's even been the subject of a couple of quote-unquote think pieces that have emerged across the internet, that this is somehow going to place Captain Picard into the Kelvin timeline. And I think there's a lot of legal uh, realities and and, um, and barricades to that happening yeah. beyond the fact that it just seems grossly implausible. I mean, first of all, Paramount and CBS would probably have to be talking to each other a lot more than they are. I'm sure that J.J. Abrams would have to be involved in some capacity if that was actually going to take place or Bad Robot would have to be involved in some capacity. Every single Kelvin timeline exploitation, including in other media like in video games, has included Bad Robot's uh, involvement in some form or fashion. So that's just totally not in the cards. I'd be very surprised. Not if that in was the book cards? <laughs> Oh boy. Well, anyway, I think we're all excited about that. Uh, last news item that I wanted to bring up um, revolves around Paramount Pictures, which seems to be a studio in transition. Recently, in a feature published in the New York Times, it detailed that relatively new Paramount Motion Picture Group President Wick Godfrey is charged with reviving, quote, tired franchises, which the writer of the New York Times piece included as Star Trek being among those tired franchises. Uh, Trek movie added some speculation that it thinks that this means Paramount is willing to move forward with Star Trek on the big screen without Bad Robot. We kind of alluded to that about uh, last time about how the Kelvin timeline might just potentially be finished now. Guys, is the Star Trek film franchise tired or... Is it more that Paramount is incompetent in terms of ways it leverages a franchise that should be a cornerstone of their library of IP, and they always <laughs> drop the ball whenever it comes to properly leveraging it? Chris's agony boot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Seriously, I every single time that Paramount, like the, the, the corporate positions at Paramount talk about Star Trek. I get so mad because they never seem to realize what they have. They're talking about making Top Gun and then they say that Star Trek is a cornerstone like Transformers or Mission Impossible, but then they always manage to screw it up in some way. Uh, but I'll just go back to my original question. Cicero, is the Star Trek film franchise tired? Um, it's tired if Paramount uh, just puts it through the through the sequel machine, so mm -hmm. it it has the potential to be tired. I will say that. Um, you know, I would love to say no, it's not, and and that we should get more movies because we should get more films. Um, mm -hmm. But but I think that we're at a point now where if it's not going to be in the Kelvin timeline then it does need to go to sleep for a little while uh, because you're just going to confuse audiences. You know, if, if you, if you start using the enterprise again um, and, and you, you or the TOS crew and you don't have Kirk. 
um, or you use sure. the TNG crew and you don't have the TNG crew, you know, like, it, like, it's just, it's just weird. It's weird. Uh, so I, I think it should go to sleep for a little while. Okay. Fair enough. Rachel, a little bit of a different take for you. Can a Star Trek movie exist without an enterprise? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I think, I think I've said this before, but I think all movies now have to be blockbusters in order to be successful. I don't know how you're going to draw people without something like Kirk Spock and the Enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. right? I I just don't know how you're going to do that. I don't think even like a TNG reboot would be able to draw people um, in the, you know, bajillions of dollar range. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I just think that in the climate that we have now where you have blockbuster movies and everything else is going to TV, Star Trek's going to stay on TV. Okay. Is the franchise tired on on on? Film? I don't know what that means. <laughs> what other what other franchises are tired? I, well, is I, Top Gun tired? I didn't know it was a franchise. <laughs> uh, well, you uh, you liked Star Trek Beyond. Do you think yeah. there was a fertile enough ground to move on to something else after Star Trek Beyond? Yeah, but I mean, they didn't market Star Trek Beyond very intensely. I felt yeah. uh, I felt like they kind of they, they marketed it, it wrongly, you know. Mm-hmm. Wrongly, sure. they they didn't lean into the 50th anniversary. They didn't make it an event, right? Sure. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And and that's I mean it, they it, they tripped over themselves uh, getting that movie out. It was ridiculous. Zachy, both questions to you too. Can the Star Trek film franchise exist without an Enterprise? And is the franchise tired as is? Uh, well, for for part one, I think obviously anything's possible. You know, mm-hmm. I I remember back when Rick Berman was developing um, Star Trek: The Beginning, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, and and I was uh, I was in the minority apparently, but I thought, well, there's a potential there for something interesting. So I think I think there is room to do something interesting in the universe. Uh, that being said, I think that what they have right now. And I've said this to you guys before. I mean, they've got this amazing cast, so it seems a shame to be like, ah, nobody wants that anymore, um, without at least trying to, you know, play that thread out a little while longer. You know, uh, as far as Star Trek goes, look, I mean, maybe maybe beyond underperformed, but we've been here before. You know, uh, uh, Star Trek Five underperformed, and then they came back with with the sixth one. You know, Star Trek uh, Ten underperformed, and then they came back. You know, so it's it makes sense that. That they would keep trying, and by that same token, let's just look at Paramount, uh, Mission sure. Impossible three underperformed, and they came back with the Brad Bird one. You know, Transformers was a friggin' disaster, and then they did Bumblebee. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, I, I, you know, I think that that phraseology is sort of like it's like whatever. The only thing that's tired is your approach to it, and if it, clearly there's an audience for this stuff, so if the last one doesn't work, you try again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. weird how we've we're in this age now where everything is subjected to an insta reboot when it doesn't meet uh, expectations. And you know, it didn't used to be that way because you just you look at Star Trek, or for that matter, James Bond, right? right? Like Man with the Golden Gun came out and it was the biggest flop ever in like nineteen seventy two, and then a few years later, nineteen seventy four, and then a few years later, they do Spy Who Loved Me, and it's like the biggest hit ever. You know. Mm-hmm. And that's how it used to be, you know? It'd be like, all right, let's get it right in the next one. And Star Trek was like that, too. So, you know, 
uh, I think that Paramount is smart to hang on to because it's an IP that will always have a certain amount of cachet. Like all of us here will go see a Star Trek movie no matter how much we disliked the last one if we disliked the last one. Yeah, and absolutely. There are there are enough of us that it's worth Paramount always going back to the well. Well, and, and you mentioned before that it's a matter of also managing expectations on the budgetary side. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and that's when you think about it, they're sort of a victim of their own success because Chris Pine is a star because of Star Absolutely. Trek. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, JJ Abrams just sprinkled fairy dust on his career. Right. And so as a result, Chris Pine has the ability to be like, hey, give me my $6 million or I don't need to make your movie. You know, I don't fault him for doing that. And I'm also like, you know, when you think about it, $6 million in the grand scheme of things isn't that much. Like just pay them what he wants and get on, you know. It is surprising to me that they weren't willing to shell out for him because whatever commercial appeal Star Trek Beyond did have, I think was largely due to his involvement. Yeah. Uh, I mean, really, I love that whole cast. I think all of us are crazy about that whole cast. The yeah. the fact that that cast succeeded as well as it did in bringing all of those characters back is a huge testament to the foresight of J.J. Abrams and the entire creative team behind the 2009 movie. Um, and when you think about it, they did such a good job of it that they popped the cork on the very notion of recasting those characters because because now we've got Ethan Peck as Spock and nobody's like, no, 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 we can't do it. It's like, oh, yeah, we okay. were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, we we definitely were before they cast, you know, before it was cast. Uh, sure, sure. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm guilty of that because I said I couldn't imagine anybody besides right. Quinto. Besides and- Quinto. Okay, fair enough. That's That's a good point. But but the, no, the point is well taken though, because would would the recasting of Spock if the two thousand nine movie had never come along been nearly mm-hmm. as palatable uh, among the? Oh no the no fandom? no never 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 yeah yeah you know I mean he would have if 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 yeah if there was only if there was only Leonard Nimoy, there's no way that Ethan Peck would be allowed to be Spock. Yeah, you know, I think you're yeah. right. Um, Quinto yeah, blazed Quinto the trail. The trail. Quinto, Quinto and, made it a role as opposed to yeah. a person. Mm, yeah, and that was really the first time that it happened in the history of the franchise. Right. I mean, granted, that's a, a true statement now with the entirety of the TOS cast. But, I mean, I still stand by that I think the best cast character in the 2009 film was probably Carl Urban as Dr. Oh, McCoy. yeah, he was great. Just, but, I mean, he was a little I, buff. He was a little... Well, I guess he was... Sure, yeah. Oh, no argument here, but I mean, I had no conception of anybody else playing that character. I could sort of see it... Like, as soon as I saw pictures of Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto, I could sort of see it, you know, but mm-hmm. that was not true of Carl Urban until I went into the theater right. okay. in May of 2009 to see him yeah, play the sure. part. So, sure. uh, so yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, a lot of this, I think a lot of my personal resentment, and then we'll move on to the episode discussion after this, but I think a lot of my personal resentment right now towards Paramount comes from exactly what you guys mentioned about their mishandling of Star Trek Beyond specifically. Uh, I am apparently, I know that all of us here generally liked it. Cicero, it took you a subsequent right. viewing to sort of right. like oh, it. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I enjoyed it. I just didn't think it was great. Right. Yeah. 
And I, I came out of it just the, in my very first viewing, just very, very satisfied with it. And apparently I'm in the minority when it comes to that. I'm with you. Yeah. And, and, and Zachy, I know you felt the same way too, but that, that 50th anniversary should have been a pop culture event. I mean, I'm old enough now that I remember what they did at the 30th anniversary, which yeah. seemed like such a big deal at the time. You know, not only did we have Star Trek First Contact that year, but we had two different shows on television and we had a whole legacy of events and product tie-ins and all these these testaments to Star Trek being around for three decades. And it hits that five-decade anniversary and it just kind of comes and goes with a whimper. With with a movie out. With a movie out, yeah, exactly, and, and a TV show in development, right? right. That's utterly bizarre, yes. actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it just speaks to to Paramount's really big misunderstanding of what they have, and that's why I'm glad that we have so much TV stuff to look forward to because I think it's kind of running with the the baton, so to speak, for the for the time being, but. But I do hope the I hope the merger happens. But for if for no other reason than that, it'll because because it'll be a instead of this turf war that we have right now, it'll be valued as the homegrown IP that it is. I, I completely agree with that, and um, I mean while the while the two companies were one in Star Trek sort of '90s TV heyday, you did see some crossover in production personnel and even some aspects of narrative across the movies. Yeah. They referred to each other often. It was a cinematic and television universe happening well before the Tony Stark came along into movie theaters. <laughs> and uh, and it was a joy to take in all that stuff and see all the lines being drawn between things. That was such a rewarding thing to observe, especially when I was a kid, seeing how all that stuff connected. And it's a shame that we just don't have anything even remotely close to that. But hopefully that merger will happen and that we could be seeing more stuff like that in the future. Okay, but we do have an entirely new Star Trek episode to talk about. So let's move along to our discussion for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 2, entitled New Eden. Aboard Discovery, Burnham reveals that Spock's personal logs contain locations of the red bursts across the galaxy. Asking Captain Pike to track down Spock in order to get some answers about his awareness of these signals, Pike reveals that he knows exactly where Spock is. In Starbase 5's Psych Ward, where he's been since a mere few days of his leave had elapsed. After Pike informs Burnham of her foster brother's whereabouts, he suggests that she extend an olive branch to try and assist in their investigation. So first question is, what do you guys make of the episode's positioning of Spock in this way? Does it kind of introduce him on a back foot, so to speak, or do you think this is fair game mechanically in terms of getting him involved in the plot? Zachy, start us off. I I think it's, it's smart to have Spock be the element that we are you know, it's like the, the 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 ball that's just bouncing just out of reach, and we're following along because it that it makes sense to build up to that reveal, while also allowing several or at least a few episodes to orient us to the show's new status quo. Mm-hmm. 
because I, I'm g- guessing separately from the narrative side in a marketing sense, they're, they're viewing season two as an opportunity to bring in a lot of fans who uh, maybe either sampled the, the, the first season, didn't like it or didn't watch it at all. Right. So it's, it's almost like a repilot. And so if you, I mean, that's what we've seen with episodes one and two, they're very sort of classic Trek ish in terms of their construction. And I'm including TNG into that notion of classic Trek, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And so make, we've already got Pike. Let's, let's play the thread out a little bit before we, before we see Spock. Makes sense to me. Okay. Yeah. Fair point. Cicero, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with Zachy completely. It's the, where, uh, we don't want to be overloaded with uh, with characters that we don't know, and and you know and that's kind of also the thing too. Like it's Spock is amongst all of these characters. Spock is the character that we know the best right. uh, in the entire you know of everyone that we know exists right now within the world of Discovery. We know that character the best. So let's hold off on seeing that character. Because we still need to get more information about all of these other characters, characters that we've known from our past, like Pike uh, and Number One, uh, and the characters that we're getting to learn on Discovery, uh, and and let them form those relationships before we before we throw uh, Spock Spock in the mix. Very understandable. Rachel, were you surprised to see that Spock was in a psych ward? And how do you think that uh, that positions him ahead of his first full appearance? Well, I wasn't surprised. I think that it's a nice little mystery that they're giving us. Mm-hmm. To think, well, where's Spock? What's he doing in the psych ward? Right. Just kind of a, a thing that makes it even more exciting to see him when we do see him. That he's going to give us some answers to some of these mysteries. Mm-hmm. So. And he's potentially harboring these to the to the degradation of his own mind. Uh, that I mean, it is it is interesting. I guess the thing that kind of uh, that that kind of gets to me about this, and I know that see with Star Trek, I'm particularly sensitive. I guess to having a sort of typical fanboy attitude, if you want to say it this way, because immediately what I thought of when Pike detailed that Spock was in a psych ward. I remember an interview with Bruce Tim where he was taught animate DC comics, animation legend, Bruce Tim, where he was talking about uh, the early days of the justice league animated show from 2001. And uh, he, he mentioned that, well, Superman is there. We're always going to have Superman as a member of the Justice League, but how do we show our weekly enemy's strength? Well, what if they beat up Superman? And there's a a, a surprising preponderance of early Justice League episodes where Superman kind of gets his ass handed to him by these low-rent nobody villains, usually with like electricity or something. It was all like Superman was so prone to electricity in those early Justice League episodes. And putting Spock in a psych ward kind of struck me as a way for Discovery to make their plot very important by electrifying Superman, in this case, Spock. And it's probably not a reasonable reaction on my part. Uh, We haven't even seen Spock. We haven't seen what he's going to be doing in in the psych ward, so to speak. But uh, 
I don't know. My first impression was probably a little more emotional than it should be. <laughs> because I, I, I want to see... I want to see Spock, but I want to see Spock. And I understand that the show is probably going to go with Spock in a direction that will ultimately get us to seeing him as he's supposed to be at the beginning of TOS. But uh, yeah, I wasn't crazy about it at first. I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind, uh, particularly before we've even seen the character show up. But uh, yeah, first impression was just a little wonky. Huh. You know, Chris, if if I can just add a thought, I I think uh, when you the, when you look at the construction, I mean, this is a a an arc of however many episodes, and I'm mm-hmm. sure they're looking at it the same way. For example, JJ looked at Luke in Force Awakens, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Where as soon as Luke showed up, if he was like in the middle of the movie, suddenly he becomes the center of gravity. Right. And sure. Spock, like if Spock and Pike show up, then it would become the Spock and Pike right. show. Right. Yeah. That's true. Right. So, so I'm sure that's the calculation. I mean, that's going to be a trick because, because I mean, we're, we're going to see him presumably in the next couple episodes. And like, how does the dynamic shift? Because we haven't even seen Ethan Peck, but he is Spock. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. You know. Very true. Yeah. No, that's that, and and that's an excellent point. Um, that's something that I hadn't really considered in this equation, but uh, I can't disagree with what you say. So. <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely be interested to see it, um, to see how things play out in the subsequent well, episodes. I, well, I, I, yeah, I, what I will say to kind of uh, ease, ease your anxiety, Chris, is that when I heard that they put Spock in the psych ward, I didn't think that he was standing in the in front of the mirror with like lipstick scrubbing, you know, <laughs> talking about how he's pretty. So like I, I, I figured, you know, like I, I think all of us kind of uh, determined that, all right, well, he chose to go in there. There's some things that are happening. He's having nightmares. He can't explain why. That's weird. And we'll find out what that's really doing to him uh, later. Oh, sure. Like, yeah. 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 And, you know, I, th- I guess part of my reaction is just that automatically, just that single line about where he's at, it's surprising how much power that line has because it is a complete subversion of a five-decade norm for the entire franchise. And maybe I'm overreacting, but <laughs> you could always count on Spock's sanity in every situation, in every story in which he appears. And- Scott, Chris, it, it reminds me what you're saying of when they were trying to get Leonard Nimoy to come back for the motion picture – and uh, the, they pitched him with Spock has had a mental breakdown and he's in a sanatorium. And Nimoy was like, well, why would I want to play that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I they mean, had to wait Nimoy out, basically, to do right. that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, ultimately the motion picture, it just took it in a, in a different direction, but still kind of had that flavor to it. Yeah. Uh, but just on the other side of the extreme, instead, he's super rational. But yeah. um, and I'm probably putting too much weight in it. Obviously, we haven't, like I said, we haven't seen him yet. But it is already you. You, I think it gives an impression of the kinds of expectations that the show is trying to subvert by taking a rock solid pillar of the entirety of the canon, basically, and turning it on its head. And on one hand, I appreciate that, but on the other hand, it makes me nervous. So. You know, I I'll, think it's fine, Chris. Come down. All right. All right. <laughs> <Shut up> now. <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's move along with the plot. So, 
Discovery tracks another mysterious stellar signal, but its location in the beta quadrant would make conventional warp travel unfeasible. The crew decides to revive the use of the spore drive against the wishes of Starfleet until a non-human host could be found to pilot it, though a concerned Stamets takes one for the team and navigates the ship to the burst's location. After jumping, and uh, I like Saru's line about how you'll never forget your first <laughs> jump that he threw out to Captain Pike. I appreciated that. After jumping, Discovery arrives at a planet with a previously unknown human population. Evidence suggests that their culture dates from the time of World War III, and because the civilization is pre-warp, Pike concludes that the Prime Directive applies to their visit to the surface. An away party including Captain Pike, Burnham, and Joanne Owasekun investigate and discover a primitive society with a religion combining multiple human religions. A few citizens even preserve tales of the war. So this is the fourth time that Star Trek has used the idea of human descendants placed on a distant planet by an external alien force after the Paradise Syndrome from the original series, the 37s in Voyager, and North Star in Enterprise. What do you guys make of this take on an old Trek trope? Zachy? I think they were very deliberately doing this kind of a story just to show that start that discovery can do this kind of star trek sure and i mean i don't know i mean like north star is one of my all-time favorite star treks period i just love it so i i like that this evoked that uh i thought this was was better than the uh, you know the landrew episode you know that's like one of my weakest ones you know mm-hmm. but sure. th- this idea of of um of, of deliberately hewing to Trek tropes, I think it's very smart because it allows us to, like we know how quote unquote Star Trek is supposed to act in these situations, but we've never seen our characters act in a situation like this. So it gives us that opportunity to see them test their boundaries. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Cicero, what do you make of this, uh, the, the reappearance of this trope uh, just in the franchise in the modern day? Well, yeah, I think uh, Zachy Zachy nailed it. Right, you know, when he said that this is uh, a deliberate a deliberate step on on their part. The thing that I really enjoyed was how they subverted our expectations using this trope. Hmm. Every you know, at every point when uh, you thought you knew what was going to happen, they didn't do it. And, and usually, what happens, and and again. We talk about, uh, you know, I talked about the the Orville and how the Orville had their first contact. And that was by the numbers. You know, you go to the place, you have the first contact, everything seems like it's going to be okay. Someone says something innocuous and then everything goes to shit. Right. And uh, here we you have the first contact. Uh, It looks like the music is starting to swell where you think they're going to be, there's going to be some aggression. Turns out that they're not aggressive. Uh, and the one act of aggression was the, uh, the stun grenade. Yeah. And even, even the aftermath of that was not aggressive. Uh, so like at every moment you thought, especially with uh, uh, when you're, when you're mixing in religious zealotry, mm-hmm. um, you you always think that all of that stuff goes hand in hand. It's you know this this uh, these weird ideologies and and aggression, and they didn't do any of that. 
that's that's very true, and that's a really good point. Uh, it certainly kind of zigged when I thought it was going to zag. That's that's for sure. Rachel, what do you think of the re the reemergence of this trope? Yeah, I think it was cool. It was very recognizable. Um, I think a lot most of the plot turns were. I mean, not entirely surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I think the the people's response to being rescued or whatever to combine all of Earth's religions <laughs> is a very Star Trek thing, yeah. right? Like that would never. Like I'm like, oh, that would never happen. <laughs> but that's a very. It just felt so Star Trek for them to do that. Um, so. Yeah, it felt very familiar. Um, I think it may have been paced a little bit fast for me, mm-hmm. um, like the last episode. I And I think they just maybe didn't spend as much time on the planet as I was used to or maybe that I would have liked to. I don't mm-hmm. know. I just felt like there's not enough time in these episodes to really build a lot of tension because mm-hmm. everything just happens so fast. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's that's fair. I um well, I I appreciated the hell out of this to be totally honest with you. I mean, um I I I'm not a big fan of the paradise syndrome either. Uh the 37s is okay, uh but I'm also uh, I enjoy North Star quite a bit. Uh, we actually just watched it recently because after playing Red Dead Redemption for some reason I got on a kick of watching western star trek crossovers so uh north star was one of the first ones that i watched when i was sort of on that strange kick of a of an episode binge but um i totally agree with um with what cicero said about subverting expectations because you're right you do expect that zealotry to sort of take over and uh and and cause something a little bit more violent to take place and that's not what happened Uh, And I appreciated that because it helps to show that Star Trek's vision for humanity could take place, at least in terms of its approach to violence, uh, even in the absence of regular societal progress and technological progress. And I thought that that was kind of cool. Clark's third law that any advanced extraterrestrial intelligence is indistinguishable from God is an old idea explored by the franchise, but seems to take more of a larger meaning in this episode specifically. Uh, How do you think its use here compares with who watches the Watchers from The Next Generation? And do you guys agree that the Prime Directive applies in this scenario? Zachy. Oh, that's a good... That's a lot to chew on. I I think that... um, I think Who Watches the Watchers is a better illustration of, of what Clark was saying. Uh, but, I mean, that's like one of those all-time episodes, you know what I mean? So that's yeah. – that's uh, to say this one isn't – it doesn't measure up to that is no no slight on this one. Oh, sure. Um, I, I, I think – what was the second part of, of what you were asking? I'm sorry. Do you think the Prime Directive applies? That's, that's a good one. I mean, I, I think that – like what – Pike's rationale made sense to me, right? Because the way he's looking at it is that these these people were 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 abducted before we had warp, and they've just evolved in their own. Like they're not beholden to any concept of Earth anymore, except as the, the you know the, the part of their distant past that 
you know, they don't think it even exists anymore. So I think his rationale works. But, you know, what's funny is I, this is the thing with the prime directive is that you can easily see Kirk being the guy who's like, all oh, these people and they have had their destiny taken away from them. It's our job to restore it. And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, Kirk, you know, so it just depends on who the captain is. Maybe I'm just very malleable. I'm like, you make a good point. You make a good point. You all make good points. I, I would be a terrible captain. <laughs> well, how how would Captain Hassan decide to to, to take? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd shrug my shoulders and uh, I'd go, eh? you know? go in the ready room and do a Google search for previous captains. <laughs> Google what would Captain? Yeah, is this I mean, prime directive apply? <laughs> hey Siri, what is it? Yeah, I, I think I think that Captain Pike's approach is very Picard esque. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think it's truer to um, where the franchise had grown into by the time we got to the next generation era. Sure. Yeah. 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 I can see that. Cicero, what do you think? How uh, how does this idea of uh, you know advanced technology being indistinguishable from magic strike you in its use in this instance? And uh, would you apply the prime directive in this scenario, Captain Holmes? Well. It- the for the first part i i mean i liked i liked what they did um i thought that uh since they they believe it's it was godlike it, you know it came it was otherworldly uh whether that be um you know and and to that point uh, whether that be um extraterrestrial or a deity is it is immaterial. It's something I can't explain. And therefore it's beyond me. Sure. So, and they, you know, they, they ran with that. And I thought, I thought it worked well um, in this episode. I, I also, I don't know. I, I, so at first I, I agreed with, with Captain Pike that uh, since they were taken prior to warp, uh, you know, warp discovery on earth, uh, that we should, you know, uh, uh, exercise caution, blah, 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 blah. But as soon as Jacob discovered, uh, you know, as soon as Jacob discovered that he was right all along, then, and and Jacob brought it to the all-mother, uh, and, and they were all kind of like, eh, yeah, you know, so what? So th- <laughs> at that point then you can say all right fine yes we you know we are um because it's not it's not first contact you can't have first contact with your own species mm-hmm. if, if they're aware that they are sure. you know so like the, you guys just you lived on some island and uh you know hey if you want to come with us you can if not then you can stay here and hang out yeah well said Rachel, do you like the use of Clark's third law in this episode? And how would Captain Baker decide to apply the prime directive? <laughs> Captain Baker Clow. Captain Baker Clow, sorry. Might use your name. I don't know. We'll see. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting because it kind of applied to this episode, but it seems like that it probably has some broader implications for the season as a whole. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, like the, the red things might be some sort of intelligence that is beyond um, our understanding. 
Uh, what was the second part of your... Oh, yeah. Would I... Uh... Captain on deck. No. All right. So Captain Picard made a similar decision in favor of of the the people, right? So like the space Irish. Oh, the space Irish. <laughs> yeah. You're going far back now. <laughs> so the there was like the Mariposa, right? Yeah. And there were the people and they were like agrarian and they just <laughs> beamed them onto the Enterprise with all their animals and stuff and were like, now you live here. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm? And, and then Riker, Riker slept with one of the space <laughs> Irish ladies. <laughs> oh boy! Classic. I like yeah. that episode. It's one of people say it's one of the worst TNG episodes. It is one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Faith in Pagora, where's Michelini? Yeah. The only thing missing from that episode. <laughs> but I mean, the prime directive obviously didn't apply there, right? Conceivably not, no. Yeah, so why would it apply here? I think if they're human, you probably should tell them what happened to them and (laughs) let them decide what they want to do. So I agree with Cicero. Well, I mean, if anything, I think this proves that Starfleet gives a a great amount of latitude to its captains to actually determine how to apply the Prime Directive. Because I don't think any of you guys are wrong. Uh, it's, it's just a matter of the, the scenario in the moment. Um, I would probably be more on the, the side of their destiny was taken away from them personally, (laughs) but, uh, but I've always kind of, I guess, had a more interventionist attitude when it comes to humanity's depictions in these kinds of scenarios in Star Trek in the past. So whether or not that's a that's a solid application of the prime directive, I I can't say for certain. But I I think that the the fact that the scenario engenders as much conversation as it just did uh, shows the the latitude that captains generally have when deciding how to apply it. So yeah, well done, guys. Well done. All right. So moving along with the plot, much of the action in the episode takes place within the settlement's church. An astronomical anomaly occurs, producing an extinction-level shower of radiation. Tilly devises a plan to use the asteroid captured in the previous episode to avert the catastrophe, receiving advice from a medical staffer who turns out not to exist, rather being a manifestation of a friend from Tilly's childhood who's now deceased. So Jonathan Frakes alluded to this coming from a seed planted at the end of season one, namely that spore that landed on Tilly's shoulder. Uh, Do you guys have any bets on whether or not this could somehow be the catalyst that leads to the full return of Dr. Culber? Or do you think this could potentially mean something else in terms of the longer narrative of the season? Rachel? Well, my first impression was that the... um the friend was some sort of manifestation of the red deal, Mm -hmm. red angel lady Yeah, (laughs) or man, I guess angels are androgynous. (laughs) Um, So I didn't even think about the, the mycelial network being part of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And Stamets said something earlier in the episode about life being eternal. Did he not through mycelium? Within the mycelium. Uh, wow. Well, it's quite a mystery. I do not really know. 
<laughs> I did know right away that that person was like a dead person or an apparition or something. Did you? Yeah. Remember when you're wa- you're supposed to be watching like Tilly run back and forth, right? And you're supposed to be laughing, and I was like, that lady's gonna disappear. She's gonna disappear. <laughs> right. <laughs> so creepy. The actress did a good job of like just being a little bit off. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely picked up on that. All right. Interesting. Cicero, what do you think? Um, hashtag Rachel is right. I mean, that's that's <laughs> that was it in a nutshell. Um, the one thing you are missing is uh, she she averted disaster after getting blown in the face by the dark matter. That's true. That she, she cut off uh, and her ears are bleeding and everything else. That's how she wound up in sick bay in the first place. Um, shout out, by the way, to that doctor. Uh, I forget who the actor is that's playing the doctor, but uh, the doctors had this season. We've seen the doctor three times, and each time the doctor has stolen the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's she's had one liners in each each one of those uh, each one of those scenes where you're like, oh yeah, those those are good ones. Yeah. Um, but uh, like uh, Tilly winds up getting blasted by that the the piece of the get a piece of the rock uh the, the, the prudential dark matter um and th- then then like then she winds up seeing this person but like it's is it the seed from the mycelial network is it th- now with this infusion of getting blasted by the by the dark matter is she like uh like personally uh, uh, like a mycelial network, can she just do the spore drive jump on her on her own by herself? Mm. Has Tilly like she's gonna be Nightcrawler? It <laughs> smell like brimstone all over the place. Jeez, uh, you're throwing a lot of theories out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Hey, why not? No, hey, more power one of, to one you. of them. Yeah, one of them may stick. Now, the- then I look brilliant. <laughs> that's why we're here man no keep them coming i i like it it's excellent uh zaki what do you think about uh about this character showing up uh and what it could mean do you think this could lead to something with dr colbert do you think it has wider implications for the season i think uh dr colbert coming back is a safe bet it's just a matter of time mm-hmm. um and i and i think the fact that Tilly is now tied in with um, what uh, Stamets has experienced uh, in the mycelial network is itself seeding something in terms of, uh, you know, that the uh, that ability being something that Stamets doesn't have to necessarily experience on his own. Like they're not just going to throw away the spore drive. That's obviously going to be a plot device, but it can't like, it can't be like, Oh, Paul, you don't do You might really die this time. Like, so they have to get us to a place where it's safe to use. And I think what's happening with Tilly is, is part of that, that journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And you know, this is kind of emblematic of a lot of my impatience with uh, some of the more entrenched, but anti discovery Star Trek fans that are out there uh, who just take every possible opportunity to crap on the existence of this as a plot device just because, well, how, how is Voyager stranded in the Delta Quadrant if the spore drive technology exists? And, you know, first of all, a lot of these people, I don't think, understand that there is 
a whole season and now two additional episodes worth of material that fully shows that the writer's room is cognizant of how this show connects with the larger canon. But also, you know, that part of the story hasn't been told yet. I have a suspicion that the return of Dr. Culber will also be tied with the, let's say, retirement of the mycelial technology uh, and might play a factor, like potentially crossing some kind of a line uh, in terms of why it's not used in the future. I don't know. That's just total speculation on my part. But That's why we're here, man. Yeah, exactly. I I have a feeling that the two are connected in some capacity, uh, bringing someone back from the dead uh, or just playing with the the, the sheer balance of life is something that Starfleet generally freaks out about. So, um, you know, if, if they discover that this technology can be utilized to effectively play God, then I feel like they're going to want to put the kibosh on it pretty fast. That's just a suspicion of mine. I, I don't know. We'll see. But uh, anyway, my point is that we don't know the whole story yet. So people who are complaining about it can shut the hell up. Moving along, um, the show seems to be pushing the idea pretty hard that the bursts and the Red Angel itself are almost like signposts that help aim discovery at people or societies that need help. And this seems to suggest that some kind of a larger power is at work in pointing the ship towards people and societies in danger. Could that larger power be the Iconians? Because there are a lot of fans that seem to be attaching to them as the possible sources of these signals, and it would certainly be uh, relatively untapped uh, potential mm. to explore with the Iconians uh, that we haven't seen since the days of the next generation, at least. Zaki, what do you think? Have the Iconians entered the equation in your mind at all when it comes to seeing these bursts and the Red Angel and all that, uh, all the service being played to both of those aspects of the, the larger story? They, they, they didn't because that, that feels like a very, a very inside baseball kind of reference. And, and, not to say that it wouldn't happen and I wouldn't be against it if it did, but it, it, I don't know. It, it feel, it does, it feels too inside to, 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 to be meaningful. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like even hardcore fans will be like, Oh, okay. Like it, you wouldn't have the right reaction. Like, like last season, the mirror thing, like mirror Lorca, that was like a big deal. Now, obviously, I had some thoughts on that, but, <laughs> but the mirror universe as a concept is is well known enough in Trek fandom that it had the it it, it, it gave the kick that you wanted, right? Mm-hmm. Sure, but I just can't imagine like, oh, it's the Iconians. People be like, all right, cool, yes, that is right, you know? Yeah, yeah, I can I can certainly see that. Rachel, have the Iconians entered into your equation at all for this? Not at all. I had to read up on what they were, like the the window guys. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I agree with Zaki. It's not going to have the name brand recognition of the Muir universe or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I think it would be kind of cool if they tied it in with that episode of TNG Mm -hmm. in some way. I, I wouldn't be opposed to that. I think it, I think it would be really neat if they could kind of thread it together with other um, Trek outings. Sure. You know, it's cool. Um, but we'll just have to wait and see. I don't have a lot of speculation. I think there's a lot of things that could be within what we already have. 
in Trek, and then of course they can make up whatever they want. So. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Cicero, what do you think? Are these the Iconians, or do you think that that do you agree with uh, Zaki and and Rachel that that might not have the the punch that they might desire? I agree with Zaki and Rachel, which is exactly why it is going to be the Iconians. <laughs> so, um, and 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 the reason the reason being is that for those people who already knew what the Iconians were, they'll go, "Oh, okay," mm-hmm. but and. For those people who had no idea, they'll just say, okay, cool. But Mm -hmm. the writers can say, it's, we're not making anything up. We're just using from that rich tapestry that everyone wanted us to, 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 you know, reach from, Mm -hmm. you know, what, why, you know, why is it set at this time? You've got all of this time in, in the, in the Trek timeline. Why do you set it 10 years before? Uh, TOS, you know, you pigeonholed yourself. You've done the, all of these things, um, and it's you know, and it's not Trek. Uh, it, when I grab more stuff from canon and use that canon to show, not only can I make my show work, but also I prove to you that I know the stuff that you really love. I know the source material. Mm-hmm. I know this franchise and, and, you know, I respect it and I love it as much as you do. And I'm, I'm going to make, I'm going to tell my stories in, in that world. So watch them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 I think I kind of agree with you. I mean, I don't know for sure, obviously, if this right. is going to end up being the Iconians, but it would certainly shut up people who don't think Discovery is observing the canon. Not that I think that that is at all a concern necessarily of the people in the writer's room and the producers of the show. Nothing will shut those people up. Oh, fair. Okay. Fair. That, that, that is probably the truth. But um, I, I just there, there are few powers that exist in the Star Trek universe that could do something like this that we've seen either in the past or the future from this point in the timeline. Uh, and the Iconians are certainly that they would certainly qualify. Uh, but just because they fit into the loose mold that's been established thus far, that certainly doesn't mean that they're going to go in that direction. But uh, I would be pretty interested to see if they decided to build upon the generally loose foundation of the Iconians that was established in the next generation, because a lot of other Star Trek media outside of the television series and the movies have used the Iconians uh, to, to pretty solid effect. Uh, they were a pretty major enemy in a portion of the Star Trek online game, and they've appeared in a multitude of books over the years uh, because there is potential there that uh, the people who have, been charged with writing those expanded universe stories uh there's potential that they have seen and decided to run with that doesn't necessarily mean anything but uh the possibilities there so keep the door cracked and who knows how how things are gonna pay out in the future but it is it's an interesting idea i just don't think we have enough information yet to make a determination and of course that's by design um it's and, actually, um, it, it's not the Iconians, it's Javid Iqbal. 
He's back. He's back. He's back. Real actor Javidi Fall is back. Excellent. I've been waiting for you. He's playing the Red Angels. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, well, guys, Pike is throwing himself into danger again uh, when he threw himself on that on that stun grenade, as Cicero alluded to. Is anyone else as hurt by his pain as I am? Because seeing him throw himself literally into danger and into harm's way is uh, starting to make me really dread his fate. Zachy, when you saw him do that, especially considering the tenor of our conversation last time about uh, this was a trait that you pointed out to the rest of us in the conversation. He's throwing himself literally at danger. What did you think about that? I mean, it's what we expect a hero to do. So I, I appreciate that they've, they've kept that thread going. I mean, I think uh, in a broader sense, I think, I think it's very interesting the role that Pike plays in a show that's designed to not have the captain be the main character. And I think to some extent we're seeing the, the limits of that a little bit. Right, because because on a show like this, the engine of the action still has to be the captain, mm-hmm. you know. And so, so the fact that you have those moments where Pike is doing something like that—that's what you expect because he's a heroic figure. But it does make me, it ma- it makes me not envious of whoever is gonna captain the Discovery after after Anson Mount's tour is done. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Poor bastard. I mean, it's 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 hard because, and I mean, that's that's kind of like when you think about it. The first season was built around the mystery of who is Gabriel Lorca. So in that sense, it made sense for for you know uh, Michael Burnham to be our our uh, uh, surrogate on mm-hmm. the show. And, and and now that that mystery is resolved and we're in a quote, sort of a more quote unquote standard Star Trek show, you realize like there's this weird. There's this pull that the the captain of the ship of necessity has, you know, because even even the end of the show, it's like Michael's like, well, I think you should uh, you should you should make a decision, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the main dramatic this weight of of the episode is left on Captain Pike, and I just in narrative terms, I find that really interesting because I think this is something that they are going to struggle with, and that's what's reflective of. You know, Captain Pike being the guy who jumps on top of the thing. Like, that's that's what the captain does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's why he got the gig, you know? Absolutely. And it's why he's going to go back to Talos 4. Uh, <laughs> poor, <laughs> bastard. poor bastard. Rachel, what do you think about that? Just that dynamic that Zachy details about how Captain Pike is the driver of a lot of the the energy of the show, but he is still not specifically the main character. Is that disruptive at all to to the way that you take the episode in, or is it something that you like? I don't think it's disruptive. I think it's an astute observation, for sure, Mm -hmm. that the main reason that this season has a different tone from last season is that there's a different captain, Mm -hmm. or at least the, the driver of that different tone is, is the different captain. Um, and yeah, it really does highlight that, that captain kind of sets the mood for the rest of the ship in some way. Um, it, it overall Pike's dangerous desires, (laughs) (laughs) um, make, make me nervous. Like 
makes me feel like he's gonna get like really hurt in the show and i don't want him to because i like him (laughs) um like before his you know big thing in like 10 years or whatever Mm -hmm. that makes him i don't know just when when he did that i was like You can't you can't be doing this all the time, man. Do you want to be in a beep beep machine? Because that's how you get in a beep beep machine. Stop trying to help people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. Cicero, what do you think about uh, the way that um, you know the captain sets the tone, but is also not the main character here? Yeah, it is. It is uh, like Rachel said, a very astute observation. Um, it is. Uh, it it. I mean, it is like, like the, uh, you know, professor of the dark arts in Harry Potter, um, you know, and, and every, every year or, or the new mom on uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, so every season we're going to get a new captain, but really the captain that everybody looks towards, uh, looks to for leadership and, and counsel is, is Saru. Um, so, you know, I think eventually we're going to wind up with Saru as, as the actual de facto captain. And even then he still won't be, he's, you know, he's definitely part of the ensemble, but he is not the person that, uh, or the character that, that we, the viewer tune in to see, you know, number one on the call sheet is still Michael Burnham. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, it, I, I think this is a. It's going to be a really interesting dynamic over the course of of the series uh, to see how that works. Um, where where uh, the the number one person isn't actually the leader yeah. of of the like, group. It, and the thing is, she's still a senior officer, right? right so it's right. all of the big decisions still involved. So this isn't like a lower decks type thing, right? Where you could have a main character who isn't part of the senior staff, but it's it's the and I'm not saying it's a bad dynamic, just to be clear. But I think the creatives are going to start bumping up against the limits of uh, of the the way the show is structured and and how they can they can still keep it uh, as as Burnham being sort of the first among equals, even though she's not in fact the highest ranked uh, officer. Right. Yeah. Very, very true, guys. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in total agreement. In fact, I have nothing to add. Uh, all right. Well, just finishing out the plot. An ancient helmet with a camera attached is recovered from the planet, and at the end of the show, the camera tape shows the church under attack, and then apparently the entry of a glowing angelic being before it cuts out in static. Uh, so Jacob from the planet surface has been, you know, primary point of contact between the crew of Discovery and. Uh, and just the society on the planet. But he's also the only one, as Cicero alluded to before, who figured it out, who knew exactly what was going on. This kind of ties back to the prime directive question, but guys, should Discovery have taken Jacob or was this the way that the episode should have ended or perhaps could have ended in your mind? Zachy. Oh man, I loved it. I I thought it was so great. Like it wasn't about him being like, I'm unhappy here. Oh, this sucks. And there's something wrong. He's just like, I just want to know if what my family was doing, if, if they were right to be doing it. Okay. You proved me right. Cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's such a great 
Star Trek ending, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it, 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 and, and I'll tell you that, that scene at the end when, when Captain Pike uh, comes back to the place and he's just having a, that conversation with him, I just, it, it, it to me, uh, cemented what makes this episode different from, uh, the, you know, the, the, the other yes. episodes in this vein. And it also, by the way, I, it, I appreciated that they, you know, the whole, this whole discussion of science versus faith that, the 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 episode doesn't put its thumb on either side of the scale. Very true. It doesn't portray these people as zealots or whatever, which would have been the easy, cliche way to go. Mm-hmm. And and I think by virtue of the fact that it, you know that the decision at the end is put in Christopher Pike's hands, and he's he says at the beginning, right? He's like, my dad was like a science this, but he was also teach comparative religion. So in other words, he understood the nuance enough to be. To be, you know, you could trust him with that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and and, and I mean, I, I loved I loved the fact that Jacob's like, all right, cool, and he just turns the thing off. He's like, thank you for showing me I wasn't crazy. I'm just gonna, I, I'm I'm happy here. I'm happy with my people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's great. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, well, Cicero, what do you think? Should Discovery have taken Jacob, or do you agree with Zachy in in uh in enjoying or p- perhaps even preferring the way that this episode ended to alternatives. Um, I, well, they could have done anything, um, oh, sure. but, but, but I, I really, really, really enjoyed uh, the way this episode ended. And, and in fact, the quote unquote Star Trek thing to do would have been to take Jacob with us, with them. Mm-hmm. In fact, the short Trek is exactly that we they oh, they, yeah. they chose that scenario with it with Saru. That is how Saru wound up on on that crew. You know, wound up in Starfleet, and and uh, so instead of doing that, they went in this other direction and said, "Hey," and and chose the most. Uh, these were the most utopian uh, religious people that you know that were super tolerant to to many diverse thoughts uh, while still remaining pious that I've ever seen depicted on, on television um, or maybe anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, because Jacob, you know, when Jacob was confronted or he confronted everyone um, and they lied to him, he didn't, he reacted negatively but he didn't react angrily, um, and then once he once he was got the truth confirmed, all he did was yeah like all right you know now my family can can relax we we've got our answers and we can continue to to live our lives now that we know that everybody is okay, uh, mm-hmm. and that's that's super cool like you know like Zachy said it's not. Uh, it's not that I hate it here. It's just that I wanted to know that these are the, are the things that I thought. Uh, my family has always thought, and it turns out we were right. All right, that's awesome. Yeah, you know, that's the chicken. And that was and that was enough. For yeah, him. that was that was enough, and it was it was great. And and uh, you know, kudos to the uh, to the writing team for for putting it together that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, very well said, Rachel. What do you think? about the way that the episode ended. Yeah, I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, 
Look, I know what it feels like to ask scientific questions and be frustrated in your search for answers mm. because it's hard to do science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, sometimes you don't always get the answers that you want. And um, I think that that's sort of one of the differences between science and faith is that you can find comfort in faith because you, you know, you know something to be true, right? You can mm -hmm. say, oh, I know that that is true. But science offers you no such luxury. Like it, it's, you can ask a question and I, you know, you can get some factual answers to format a uh, idea of what's going on. But sometimes you just don't have the technology to be able to prove what, what you think is is the right thing um so that can be extremely frustrating for people um and so like like i f i feel for jacob <laughs> um but you know it is ultimately to to know that you were right to ask those questions and that you were vindicated um it you know it is a very beautiful kind of resolution for him mm -hmm. more, I, I think more satisfying than having him like go join the ship yeah, like, yeah. i i um one other thing that i really really enjoyed was their decision at the end with with pike giving him that battery where basically the coda was um not only is jacob going to stay now that he's gotten his answers but we're going to give him technology that he can then tell other people came from the humans you know came from our our genetic cousins who stayed on earth to while they're visiting the 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 uh you know the like the effigy of their new multifaceted religion based on the, the angels that came and saved them from from the disaster that was earth well i mean that's certainly a possibility uh or i mean I think just as plausible a possibility <clears throat> off of that, excuse me, is that he will become his planet's technological innovator and, sure. uh, and they don't have to live in the dark anymore, or at least not just by candlelight anymore. And, uh, although, you know, you could argue that that is in and of itself a partial violation of the prime directive, or maybe not even a partial violation of it considering how closely Pike decided to stick to it early in early on in the episode, but that doesn't mean that it is not a just outcome. And I think that that is what um, that represents Pike making a judgment call with the information that is specific to the scenario that's in front of him, which is what every captain is supposed to do. Right. So um, yeah, I mean, I guess that like I was, I loved the way that the episode ended. I think that, part of the quote unquote disappointment that I feel in them not taking him home is also intentionally in my mind because of the sort of authorial intent of this episode. I think that the way, the, the reason that I feel that way is because they wanted me to, but it's also like, you can't say that it's tragic because Pike gave him you know, the, he pretty much gave him a choice of what to do with this information. And he decided all I wanted to do was just know that I wasn't thinking crazily. 
Right. And uh, and there is there is a segment of beauty in in that because it empowers or gives service to the empowerment granted by agency that is granted by good information. And uh, so I really appreciated that. I I would like I wouldn't have minded personally to see Jacob uh, go back home, but considering the way that this episode ended, I certainly have no complaints. Uh, I thought that this episode was honestly stellar in that regard and uh, looking forward to next week. I think it's going to be a long time, Chris, before uh, the discovery crew sees earth. Yeah, I think, Hey, you're, you're, you're probably absolutely right about that. Um, I mean, it's, there's a lot of potential places that, that they can go over the next several weeks. And it, just from pre-release materials for subsequent episodes that are coming up. I mean, it looks like that they they have packed a lot into this season and it just makes me all the happier that I'm going on this journey with you guys. So thanks for coming along. I appreciate it. All right. Well, any final thoughts on new Eden before we dismiss for next week, Cicero final thoughts on this episode before we take off. Uh, Great points by Zachy and Rachel. Um, I would say that I'm really, really enjoying this new version of Star Trek uh, Discovery, and I can't wait for next week. Excellent. Rachel, final thoughts on New Eden? Uh, it, it was pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would like to see more episodes like this. Mm-hmm. More episodes that are kind of a bottle episode, but also connect into a larger um larger narrative mm-hmm. very entertaining yeah it's sort of melding past formats that are being actively explored by the orville and f- formats that we saw discovery season one go into yeah yeah and it's that's great that's the way to do it i think yeah just slow down my god <laughs> They need to get a full season. That's the problem is that none of this, what is it, like 16, 17 episodes, maybe a little bit less than that. Just give yeah. us the, give us a full 26. Come oh, on. Oh, man. How expensive would that be? Oh, no. This show is never. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm good. I, Every planet is the same set. If you right, right. Exactly. If you can give me movie quality, you can give me 14 or 13 hours of movie quality episodes. Give me that over 26 hours of uh, old school TV stuff. Nah. All right. All right. Might be the seed of a future discussion that we all have at some point, but maybe after the season's over, but that's not going to be for a while. All right. Well, that's going to do it for episode 34 of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook or Google Podcasts. It only takes a minute and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. Speaking of which, Debrief is engaged into a partnership with the developers of officially licensed browser-based game Star Trek Alien Domain Incursion. Send us proof of your review of the show on social media or via email, and we'll send you a key code that's worth approximately $60 of in-game items. It's that simple. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, or you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook-like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. 
Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes, and be sure to join us as we convene next time to discuss a brand new episode of our subject series as we continue into Season 2 of Star Trek Discovery. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. Mm -hmm.